for this evening together. We thank you for your word once again. What a privilege, what a blessing, what a necessity to open it. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, tonight your word would cleanse us. It would uh, just encourage us, strengthen us, give us your wisdom and understanding for the days in which we live. And these things which happen in ancient times that you're also speaking of that will happen and are happening in our lifetime and in times to come. Lord, we pray that you would just minister by your spirit in our midst here tonight. Thank you for each and every person that is here. And we ask you to bless this time of Bible study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When uh, back in February uh, 2013, when, when I was returning from Israel and Dr. Russ and uh, my wife and other Calvary pastors, we went on that trip over there and I spent 10 days going all around uh, Israel. When I was coming back, this is the chapter, chapter 36, that had the most profound impact on me. Uh, when I thought of everything that I had seen with my, with my own eyes, you know, if you've seen Israel in pictures or if you've seen, you know, uh, video or you've seen some documentary or something, but when you, when you walk the land and you see it for yourself and you capture uh, different things uh, in, in photographs, you may or may not recall that when I came back, uh, I did a whole slideshow that night, a hundred and some pictures, and the message was on this chapter here chapter 36, because this chapter is living testimony of everything God said would take place. We're literally seeing prophecy fulfilled right before our very eyes. This is the chapter that struck out uh, the most to me. It also struck out the most to me is, you know, you can go visit any place you, you want, uh, provided you have the budget to do it and you have the time to do it. But let's say you go to Paris or you go visit Tokyo or you go to the Grand Canyon or you go to places that uh, you've always wanted to go or visit. Uh, but, you know, I've seen some pretty cool places in, in my life and places that I think back, man, those were beautiful uh, places. But Israel is the only place that I've ever been that I can honestly say I will live there someday. Think about it the only place that you'll ever be able to go. You can go to California for the first time. I mean, they're from there, say, you know, there's other places. But anyway, but California's a great place. There's all these different places you can go, but you may never live in those places. But if you're saved, if you're born again, you will someday walk and really be in the land with Jesus himself. And we're going to get, as we get further into Ezekiel, uh, we'll see about the coming kingdom that will be set up in Israel. Now, this doesn't get into some of the details that we'll get into in later chapters, but it, it already starts to kind of open the door as to what God is going to do in that land and, in fact, what he's doing there today. And, uh, again, it's just an exciting thing to know that uh, you know, it, it's, it's very expensive to buy property in Israel. I mean, it, it's like the cost of Southern California, uh, Jerusalem, even a small little flat is ex incredibly expensive. If you want to buy something in Tel Aviv, if you want to buy something in Israel, very, very expensive uh, living in those cities. Uh, but someday, those of us who know the Lord, uh, we're not going to have to buy anything. God is going to give us a place. Uh, now, I don't know exactly how all that's going to work because it really is going to be the place uh, where God will uh, bring uh, all the uh, born-again Jewish nation back together. Uh, but we'll have some kind of we'll have some kind of access in walking the land, and whether our home is uh, somewhere else and we just have you know, ready access, 
remains to be seen, but there is going to be a wonderful kingdom that's going to be there. And so tonight, we want to look at uh, chapter 35, what's all this stuff about Edom. That doesn't sound like a really pleasant chapter if you're, if you're kind of following along. Then it goes into chapter 36. If you're taking notes, uh, I've titled our time in the Word tonight called, uh, or titled the study, He Alone Renews. He Alone Renews. And we'll look at three things, uh, the land, the light, and the lives. The land, the light, and the the lives. We'll surf, uh, look at this land. Now, you know, Israel, you know, right there on the Mediterranean, north of the country is Lebanon, south of it, it directly is Egypt, and then uh, to the east uh, is, um, to the east you have Jordan. Uh, well, where Jordan is today, the southern part of Jordan, so go down where the Red Sea is, uh, the southern part of Jordan is where Edom was. And so, this 35th chapter spells out for us judgment that's coming on the land of Edom. Uh, Edom was going to in- incur the full fury of God. Edom's judgment, it precedes uh, Israel's forgiveness. So Israel, God is saying that in the 36th chapter, I'm going to forgive the nation of Israel. I'm going to one day wipe clean the slate. Aren't you glad that God wipes slates clean? He says, I'm going to one day wipe the slate clean for his chosen people, Israel. But before that takes place, and you know, that's the thing when you read the Bible, sometimes when something's going to take place, you think that they are like right near each other. But sometimes there's like a hundred or 500 or 2,000 years in between some of these things. And so Edom has to be judged first, and then later Israel will be forgiven. And along the way, Israel has some partial forgiveness, but 30, the 36th chapter really speaks to, when you get to the end of the 36th chapter, the full forgiveness that is coming. And so Edom, if you understand where it was geographically, just go south, down, follow the Jordan River, down to the Sea of Galilee, and then just look to the west, down there on that lower corner there, all that land all the way down to the Gulf uh, would have been... Edom. And Edom was the distant relative of Israel. They were related to each other uh, by bloodline uh, way back because the patriarch of Edom was Esau. You had Jacob and you had Esau. And of course, Jacob, God later changes his name to what? Israel. So the two of them, the two brothers, Jacob and Esau, Jacob ends up following the Lord. Esau rejects the Lord, rejects the birthright uh, that, uh, that he was given. And he ends up following idolatry and false gods. And all of the nation of Edom that would come after him, they too are an idolatrous nation. And they always have this strife with Israel. Edom was much like Philistia uh, was in the history of Israel. It was a constant enemy that despised Israel. They mocked the God of Israel, much like Goliath of, remember the Philistine, he would mock the God of Israel. Well, that's the way Edom felt the same way. They would mock the God uh, of Israel, even though way, way back they were distant relatives of one another. They ridiculed them as a nation. They fought Israel at every turn. Uh, Many Bible scholars actually consider Edom Israel's worst enemy. Some might would say Philistia, but many consider Edom to be Israel's uh, worst enemy. Uh, Idumea uh, is the name that you'll sometimes see for Edom in the Greek. And uh, again, whether Philistia, Philistia is the worst or 
Edom's the worst. In either case, uh, they were a fierce enemy that Israel constantly dealt with, constant thorn in the flesh. Edom is also a picture for us. And again, you think of constant battle, constant weariness, constant attack. Uh, We uh, have some Edoms in our life too. The hatred that the world has for Christ that lives in us, right? So we have Christ living in us. The world has a hatred for that, constantly battling against it. And in Israel, the heart of the nation, because the land, uh, the land itself, God always linked, and, that, and notice when we were reading the text, I mentioned the land a couple of times. God always links the land and the people together. If the land is being blessed, the people are being blessed. If the people are being blessed, the land's being blessed. And so for whatever reason, God blessed this land and this one strip of earth, God considered he made it holy by his own design, his own desire. But his spirit rested where? On Mount Zion, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. Not that that's the only place, you know, God, his spirit is everywhere. But he chose to reside in the Holy of Holies. So in the heart of the nation, if you think of Israel, its heartbeat is where? Jerusalem. Where is the heartbeat even in Jerusalem? On the Temple Mount. On the Temple Mount, that's the heart of the nation. So in the heart of the, if the Israel's actually kind of shaped like a body. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's got length like that, like we are. It kind of looks like standing upright. So in the heart of the nation is Jerusalem. God dwells there in the heart by choice. You know, Solomon builds the temple, going all the way back to the tabernacle. The heartbeat of God is there in the nation. But the nations around them hate the God that dwells in the heart of Israel, just like the people around the world today are killing and persecuting Christians because they hate the Christ that resides in the heart of believers. So we have Edom still to this day in our own life. Well, Edom was destined to be judged for its hatred, for its venom. In uh, Psalm 137, verse 7, it says, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. We've read this verse before in previous studies, but that's R-A-Z-E, not R-A-I-S-E. Raise it to the ground. And of course, that's mentioned there in the 35th chapter where they were mocking when the calamity and the bloodshed fell upon Jerusalem. Edom loved it. Remember? Remember on 9-11 when the towers went down that some people around the world celebrated fireworks? I mean, you know, people had died People had plunged off the top of the towers to their death, and yet there was people like shooting guns in the air, celebrating. It was a party for some people that were like, yay, America had a bunch of people die, right? Well, that's the way Edom celebrated when Jerusalem fell under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And so the psalmist is saying, remember their action, Lord. Sometimes you feel like praying like psalmist, don't you? You ever see the way, you know, crush their bones into powder, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you read things that the psalmist say, wait, am I allowed to pray like that? You know, uh, really, we're not. We're supposed to pray for our enemies and those that spitefully use us. But it does give us an indication that God, what it is, the psalms are reminding us that God will judge sin. That God will judge that uh, we don't have to take uh, revenge. Revenge is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Then in Psalm 60, verse 8, and also in Psalm 108, verse 9, uh, you have this uh, passage. This isn't the whole verse, but part of both those verses say, Over Edom I will cast my shoe. 
which, you know, if you step on something, you're, it's way beneath you. You know, step on it, crush it. Uh, the Lord says, I'm going to crush underfoot Edom. Psalm uh, 60, verse 8, and 108, verse 9. And this is what the Lord will someday do to all of Israel's enemies. Someday. It's hard to, it's hard to conceive that now because we see Israel in the headlines. They're constantly badgered by the United Nations. They're constantly, you know, the media is constantly uh, saying that Israel is the problem in the world. I've talked to very smart, really nice people here in the United States who said we should just abandon Israel and let them, you know, just completely abandon them because they're the problem. They're oppressing, they have apartheid, they do this to the, uh, the Palestinians and all, the, you know, all kinds of things that are just uh, factually uh, inaccurate. But uh, one day, all of Israel's enemies will be trodden underfoot by the Lord. He's actually going to uh, the grapes of wrath where he will actually trample the winepress with his very own feet, all the armies that will come against the nation of Israel. And that final enemy, that final Edom, if you will, that final Edom will be the Antichrist himself, where he will galvanize and he will gather the world's military forces, he'll gather the world's uh, economic strength, he'll gather all the public relations against, and really there'll be an all-out assault on this very land, on this very place, uh, against the people of Israel. Today, um, Edom was destroyed uh, today, there's no trace of the Edomites. There's no trace today uh, of any, I mean, eventually, maybe, maybe they find some kind of genetic trace, but as of now, there's no trace of the Edomites. They had helped Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar came against Israel, the Edomites actually helped. You know, they actually jumped in. They became part of the, the Babylonians uh, helping, to the, helping the army, helping to move equipment, they were right there to help Nebuchadnezzar build the siege mounds to come against uh, the city. Then later, they themselves were decimated by Nebuchadnezzar. So, uh, you know, it's, be careful who you help in life, right? Because some of the people that you think are your friends in life, Nebuchadnezzar came back later and wiped them out. Uh, it wasn't a complete, they were not completely destroyed, but uh, he completely, you know, defeated them and many were killed Many were enslaved, and uh, they were weakened as a nation tremendously after Nebuchadnezzar uh, had come back later and uh, really done a number on Edom. And then, uh, then you have Hyrcanus, uh, uh, who was in the Jewish Maccabean period. This is in 126 B.C. You remember uh, the Maccabeans, uh, so you have that period of the silent period uh, in the Bible from Malachi to Matthew. And the Maccabeans, uh, they went against the Edomites. They took out uh, them as a nation at that time and really weakened them even more. Uh, and then they're really not heard from again until well after. Uh, you've got the first century. By the time you have the Jewish-Roman wars, no one hears from the Edomites after that anymore. Now, the land of Edom... Uh, it will play a pivotal role in Israel's future because even though the Edomites are gone, and Idumea you know, was later mentioned uh, in the third and fourth century as a land area, uh, you know, we might st- even, let's say, if you've got a part of the world where uh, the people are gone, uh, if, if, if there was no more Japanese people, we may still refer to the landmass as Japan for years after. So 
the area was still known, but the Edomites were gone. But the land itself that's there today in southern Jordan, that land in southern Jordan will play a, a pivotal role in Israel's future. The capital of Edom was a city called Basra. And the scriptures tell us that uh, Jesus will come up out of Basra and he'll actually have blood on his robes when he comes up out of Basra. And that, again, is to trample the nations underfoot. Basra will become in the tribulation period. So you've got the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, if you uh, believe, as I do, that the rapture precedes the seven-year tribulation, and again, there, there are Christians that, that disagree with that. There are some Christians that believe in a mid-trib rapture or a pre-wrath rapture, even a post-tribulation rapture. Uh, I'm not getting into that tonight, but we looked at some of that a couple uh, Sundays ago in the book of Luke. But if you believe in the rapture coming before the tribulation, and we will look at that a little bit more when we get into uh, some of the other, uh, chapter 38 and chapter 39, where chapter 38 and 39 fall in the prophetic timeline, we'll get into that in a little more detail. I'll probably have some maps and things like that where we'll get into. But the, um, the tribulation period, during that time, uh, the Antichrist will drive after he comes and sets up his own kingdom in Jerusalem uh, at, at a later point along the way, many of the Israelites will realize they're going to be killed and slaughtered if they don't run, as Jesus said, leave everything on your housetop and just run. And where they head is to ancient Edom. They head to Basra. And uh, the, the area of Petra may also be involved in that, which, uh, which was a fortified city. But all that area in Basra, will, in, in ancient Edom, will be the area that uh, many will escape from Jerusalem, and they'll have a safe refuge there until the end of the, the tribulation. Not, not all of the Jewish people will survive. About a third will actually find refuge there. Now, you think about refuge in a place that was the land of an ancient enemy. And if you think back in Israel's uh, history, uh, Egypt was an ancient enemy, and God gave them refuge in where? Goshen. Uh, now, originally they didn't have refuge in Goshen. They were in just as much slavery in Goshen. But then when the plagues came, the plagues didn't land after the first few. The plagues didn't land on Goshen. So they had a refuge in the place of an ancient enemy before. You'll find when you study the Bible that God repeats things a lot. And if you study uh, prophecy from a uh, Jewish perspective, the way the rabbis uh, would study prophecy, you have the term midrash, which we've talked about before, and prophecy takes place in a cyclical um, pattern where the, the repeating patterns go back and touch the previous oftentimes. And we see this in chapter 36. We'll highlight some of that uh, in just a few minutes. So this, la this land of their ancient enemy will become a place of their future refuge and safety. That's not mentioned here in chapter 36, uh, but that is going to take place. And from a prophetic timeline perspective, Israel's renewal, it couldn't happen until Edom was first judged. Edom had to be judged, and of course Edom was judged. Uh, and then finally, uh, when Edom kind of fades from the scene, by the time Edom fades from the scene, Israel's not a nation at that point either. Right? And so you have, to, you have Titus comes in, he destroys the Roman, I mean, he destroys Jerusalem and, uh, in AD 70. And so you have Israel 
they don't cease to be a people. We have plenty of Jewish people still in the world. We can't find a trace of the Edomites. But the nation of Israel did cease to be a nation just like Edom ceased to be a nation for a period of time, you know, close to 2,000 years or thereabouts, a little less, a little less than 2,000 years. And now, when you look at chapter 36, the Lord says in the first few verses, God's saying that you know, all these nations, in verse 5, he says, Surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations, against Edom, who gave my land of themselves as a possession, and with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds to plunder its open country. Now, this has happened many times in Israel's history. Uh, the Romans exploited Israel. Greece exploited Israel, right? The Babylonians exploited Israel. The Ottoman Empire uh, exploited Israel. So many, many nations over, over time have exploited uh, the land. Of course, they've mocked uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and when the land was under foreign rule... And when the land was being judged for Israel's sins, so in both cases, Israel's sin, then you know, because of Israel's sin, they lose their nation. They went into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. But even when they come back from captivity, the land doesn't restore to its former glory. Remember when the spies went in? The spies went in and the land was beautiful. I mean, grapes that were humongous. And, and you know, of course, Caleb and Joshua are like, man, we got we to gotta go. The other ten were like, no. And it was a beautiful place, and it was, it was like the Garden of Eden when they first got there. It was lush. It was beautiful. It did not have all the same amount of desert land that would come later, and is still even there. It's particularly in the southern part of Israel today. So all during that time, when it was inhabited by other nations, other empires, God was still judging Israel for their sin, but the land was still under the judgment too. And the land is still under a partial judgment and the nation state is still under a partial judgment. Why? Because right now, Israel still is constantly badgered by the nations. They're not, they don't have the full defense of God around them. Would you agree? Now, God is actually you know, protecting, but they're still under the constant spiteful mocking of the nation still even to this day. But some of the shoots of grass of chapter 36 have sprung up in our lifetime. Does that make sense? Some of the shoots of 30, chapter 36, and not just a few shoots, this is a lot. I recently, this is the time of year you're supposed to plant grass. You, know, you ever heard you know, the word sod, you know, when they roll out sod, September, October, December. So during those months, you, you put down sod because you can actually plant grass this time of year and it, the the temperature doesn't scorch the grass, and you get a decent amount of rain, and you, you don't have the high, high, high temperatures to burn it. Well, you know, at first, you only see a little bit of shoots. I planted, I planted several patches in my backyard recently, but now that we had a really good rain this week and a really good rain last week, and, and it, we didn't have any really hot temperatures, it wasn't just a little shoots. Now it's like it's, it's really, you know, a lot of green grass has popped up. But it's not the thick. It wouldn't be able to survive if it immediately went to summer like the other grass would. And so Israel has a lot of green grass coming up as far as what we see in chapter 36, but it's not the full fulfillment just yet. The land is renewing in, in an amazing way. When we were in Israel and we, uh, we, walked, uh, we walked the land, we went all over the land, um, you couldn't help but notice you know, what God is doing. And these passages uh, really struck out to me 
when it says um, in verse 8, But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit, my people Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed, I am for you, and I will uh, turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. You know, all during the time, until Israel became a nation in 1948, and we'll look at the, the nation becoming uh, a sovereign nation a little bit more when we get to chapter 37 with the dry bones. But when Israel becomes a nation, before that, the land was either desert or swamp. Anywhere you went, north, south. I mean, there was a few exceptions here and there. There was you know, areas where they had some olives, groves, but, but the percentage was rather small. And so most of it was just either dusty, rocky, um, Matter of fact, if you were, remember when you were a kid, maybe you were, if you're my age and you were a kid in the 70s, uh, and maybe if you're further back than that, and you got a picture Bible, you probably thought like I thought, this place is kind of ugly. Did you ever think that as a kid? You'd look at the pictures and you'd say, what is this? It's like, it's a bunch of rock. And, but now when you go to Israel, parts of it are just incredibly lush, incredibly green, tilled. Uh, I'll get some more pictures out. When we get uh, when we get in uh, maybe even uh, chapter thirty seven next week, uh, but the whole nation has gone, undergone a tremendous transformation since nineteen forty eight. Uh, cities are being rebuilt around the around the nation. Uh, there's highways now uh, that look just like you know our expressways. Infrastructure, uh, and you'll be glad to know, cell phone covers and Wi Fi is everywhere in Israel. I mean, they are the most connected nation on earth. Everyone there, in fact, I think they, they have the highest Facebook percentage use uh, of any nation on earth. They've got just technology. Uh, the number of patents they spit out is second only to Silicon Valley. I mean, the whole nation is, from a technology standpoint, uh, you know, very, very sophisticated. Uh, the, cities are, uh, the cities are beautiful. Cities like Jerusalem, Haifa, Netanya, um, Tel Aviv, beautiful cities. And then from a standpoint of being able to be self-sustaining, when Israel you know, was brought back into the land, you know, they, couldn't, they couldn't really produce anything because it was all swamp and because it was all desert. But that's not the case now. Israel really doesn't need to import. The two things that they have to import are, might be important for some of you, but they're not necessary for living, believe it or not. Coffee and cocoa. Coffee and cocoa. Because coffee... Right now, uh, although I think they'll solve this, you know, coffee grows in you know parts of Africa, parts of South America, Hawaii. You've got different places, uh, and then the cocoa beans, which where you get chocolate. You know, if you love Swiss chocolate, you realize they don't grow chocolate in Switzerland either, right? So Swiss chocolate, Europe doesn't grow cocoa either. They have to import cocoa powder from South America, and then they make chocolate. Well, Israel loves to make chocolate too. Their chocolate's fantastic. And that comes from, they have to import the cocoa and they have to import the coffee beans. But outside of that, milk, citrus, vegetables, meats, everything else, they do it all there. There's really not a need for any outside nations. They are self-sustaining. The kibbutz farms, the community farms that they have there, uh, all of this that you see in chapter 36, when you ride around Israel, you, you, 30, chapter 36 just comes alive. And by the way, we do want to plan a trip to Israel with this church, and we do want to take a group over there to start saving your pennies because you will need it. Uh, it's not a cheap trip. 
Uh, Israel uh, now imports millions of flowers to Europe, carnations, roses, orchids, lilies, chrysanthemums, uh, millions of flowers uh, as far as citrus goes. And this is a 2010 article in the Israel, Israel National News. Exports of all citrus fruits uh, after the last fall winter harvest amounted to 200,000 tons or 600,000 tons. Uh, a total yield of 600,000 tons will be worth uh, 1 billion shekels or $270 million. So they have more than enough citrus to, uh, to export millions of uh, uh, dollars worth of uh, produce and uh, just really a massive amount of uh, fruit that's headed to Europe and parts of North Africa. One of, uh, in, in the article goes and say, one of Israel's biblical missions is to spread light to the nations and now a new variety of Israel's clementine fruit. They have a fruit that they've uh, now introduced called, they call it the light. It's actually, it's a seedless little clementine orange. And so the ingenuity and what God is doing in the land, all the things that chapter 36 says that will happen. But that's just the foreshadow. Because that wouldn't be anything, we'll get to the end of the study tonight, that wouldn't be anything compared to what God is going to do. These are just those early shoots that are coming up and we're seeing them. Because these early shoots are a reminder to us that the Messiah's near return is coming near. Just, uh, just this past week, a prominent rabbi in Israel said that the Messiah will return very soon. So even the rabbis, I don't know if you realize this, when Jesus came the first time, when Jesus came the first time, the reason it was so significant is because the, the people at that specific time, when he came the first time, the religious leaders and the people had at no other time in history in Israel, they were convinced that the Messiah was coming. They just didn't believe it was Jesus. That's why they were inspecting John the Baptist. They were convinced the Messiah was coming. And there's this groundswell. It ought to give you chill bumps. There's this groundswell even in the rabbinic community now, that they kind of are seeing the same thing. They think their Messiah is coming soon, but he already came the first time. He'll be coming the second time. Let's look at the light. What do I mean by this? Well, in, in verses, 16, uh, it's verses 16 through 20, it talks about uh, that Israel had profaned the name of God. And so even though the land um, the land's going to be renewed one day, all the time that land was cursed, it was cursed. The land didn't sin, but the land bore the sin of the people. And so when the people sin, the land bore the curse as well. And when the people are healed, the land will be healed. And when the people have partial healing, and some of that's happening you know, right now uh, with uh, the, those that are coming to Christ in the Jewish community. But there was all this defilement of all of the Jewish law and all of the uh, purity that God had given to Moses had been uh, completely trampled, and the nations would look on and say, you're just as wicked as we are. You know, they, you, your God is no different than our God. And so God's name was drugged through the mud, and Israel had done nothing uh, but profane the name of God, and that's what he's spelling out in verses 16 through 20. But then in verse 21... It says this, that, but I had concern for my holy name. This is the Lord speaking, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. And even when they were carried in captivity, we see this with Ezekiel. Remember, Ezekiel would, you know, he'd have all the people that would gather at his, uh, at his little church service. They would like to listen to him. They just wouldn't follow anything he said. 
So again, that's still profaning the name of God when we are hearers but not doers of the word. And so God says, that's still profaning my name. Whether you're uh, in abject sin or not, if you're not actually following me, uh, you're still not glorifying my name. And he goes on to say, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went, and I will sanctify my great name. God, there's nothing any of us have ever done to earn what God would do for us, and the same is true for Israel. God will protect his own name. God does what he does for his glory and because of his goodness. Nothing that we've done. There's nothing we've ever done uh, that would earn God's grace or favor. Uh, Quite the contrary. We deserve the same judgment uh, that Israel and the land had been experienced. Uh, But when God protects, think about this. When God protects and glorifies his own name, what happens? When God protects and glorifies his own name, what happens? Well, when God exalts his name, light goes forth. Whenever God exalts his name, light goes out. It can't help it because God is light. He's light. He's life. When he magnifies his name, again, if you turn on a light switch, light's going to come on. And when God puts his name in the rightful place, light is revealed, and it gives power, and it gives clarity to the world. And Israel can see themselves for who they are when God glorifies his name. In Acts 4.12, it says of Jesus, nor is there salvation in any other, what? Name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. See, the name of God, the name of Jesus, when it's lifted up, it always gets people's attention. You go anywhere and you use Jesus' name not as a swear word, it'll get a lot of attention. It will. People are like, whoa, 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 what, did you get religious? What happened here? Right? Someone just, uh, you know, I love uh, one of Ray Comfort's, I've to, I haven't told this in a long time, but it's so funny. Have uh, you guys ever watched Ray Comfort's stuff about uh, evangelism? And uh, the, one of the funniest things he did is he was standing in line uh, at a convenience store, and someone used Jesus' name as a swear word. And he said, excuse me, is this a religious service? You know, in his, <laughs> his uh, guy's looking at him like, what are you talking about? He goes, no, I heard you use the name Jesus, and I too am a follower of Jesus. I just want to know, is this a religious service? Because it is. I'd like to participate. And the guy goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, but the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus gets people's attention. In James 5.10, it says, it says, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. See, when the name of God is proclaimed, it actually is an eye-opener for everybody. Light goes forth. If you can slip the name of Jesus into conversations, light, because then his name, he'll glorify his own name, won't he? He doesn't need our help. But again, we can be part of glorifying his name. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that you would walk worthy of God worthy of God, because we bear his name. We bear the name of God. We bear the name of Christ. The word Christians, little Christ, that we're little image. And Pastor Tony was talking about that a couple Sunday nights ago at our, uh, our dedication, that we're a, we're a portrait of Christ, that we're, we're to be a picture of Christ. His name is on us. As an author 
uh, unknown who said, God loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And it wasn't that Israel had earned God stepping in and saying, I'm going to bring renewal. I'm going to bring transformation. I'm going to bring revival. But he stood up for his own name. I don't know about you, but I'm really glad that God stands up for his own name. Because when he stands up for his own name, he gets all of our attention. Otherwise, we have our head in the sand about things that aren't all that important. Otherwise, we have our head in the sand about our true condition. Otherwise, we have our head in the sand about what our nation's true condition is. Otherwise, we have our head in the sand about what we think is important versus what God thinks is important. And when he magnifies his name, you know, uh, a lot of good examples of this, not just his name, but just his presence. Um, He got Moses' attention, didn't he? Just walking on the backside of a mountain. All of a sudden, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. You're in the presence of, he gave him a name too. He said, I'm called, Moses, who are you? I am. Self-sustaining. Whenever he magnifies his name, we take notice. And I would hope that we would take notice because he's going to magnify his name. Chapter 36 is just getting into the foreshadow. We haven't even gotten to the later chapters, but he's going to magnify his name in a great and mighty way. And when he does, it gives light and light that the world needs. Let's look at the last uh, section here. We looked at the land. We look at the uh, light. Oh, one other thing about the land that I, I failed to mention. When you, go to, when you go to Israel, if you go to Israel, if you have to wait until after the end of the tribulation, that's fine too. But if you go there now, uh, when, they, when, when people in Israel say they're leaving the country, they say, we're leaving the land. That's the term that they still use. When they come back, we're coming back to the land. They just refer to it as the land. And we see this terminology here in chapter 36 as well. But let's look at the the final section here, the lives. And we're going to finish a little bit on the land as well. But before we do that, look at verses 25 through 27. Uh, And the Lord says in verse 24, actually, I'll take you from all these countries. And we see God bringing uh, uh, the nation of Israel back from all the countries in the world today. Still many people aren't back. We have just slightly less Jewish people in the United States as there are in Israel. Israel's got um, a little bit more, uh, but then the United States is second. Then there's this massive drop-off to France. France has a little less than 500,000 or right about 500,000 Jewish people. I can't remember the latest numbers of the U.S. I think it's like we're like 7 million and Israel's like 8 million uh, actual uh, Jewish blood uh, individuals, and then you know France is three, with a way way down there, and then it's a, a lot of countries, but just little speck it, speckles of Jewish uh, communities around the world. But um, God here uh, is going to bring Israel back. Now we talked about Midrash about things repeat. This has already repeated before. Well, how? Well, after after Babylon uh, destroyed Jerusalem and then took the people captive. Uh, you also, before that, the Assyrians had already taken the northern kingdom, and they had dispersed the northern kingdom's population. And then Babylon takes the other remaining two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and they take people to Babylon and spread them around the, the Babylonian empire. And then you have Rome does it as well. Uh, after Titus takes Jerusalem, they spread Jewish people around the Mediterranean and down into Egypt and all up into Turkey and all these areas. And so you had this kind of 
each of these empires spread the population of Jewish people around the world. And then you have things that have taken place, obviously, post-Holocaust, uh, post-World War II, many that have come down uh, that had, had fleed after the Holocaust, and uh, many that left Russia that have come down, many that have come up from Ethiopia. And God has been drawing back, but this has happened cyclically, right? Because after the 70 years, Nehemiah and others go back and rebuild the city, and many Jewish people come back, not near as many as God Many of them didn't want to come back, but some did, and so there was a repopulation of the land, and they retilled the land. So you see chapter 36 happens like this. The land was retilled. They made things grow again. Cities were rebuilt. Then comes the Romans. Has to, the whole process has to ha- happen all over again, but the gap is bigger after Rome because then really it doesn't happen again until 1948 and in some of your lifetimes and not... Uh, not too far before any of us here, then this takes place once again. The repopulation, the rebuilding of the cities, and all that. But in in the spirit of what God really wants to do, uh, the land is just pictorial because what, what does God really want to save on planet Earth? The hearts of people. And that's what we see in verses 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take out the heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk. Now, this also applies to the nation state of Israel because someday the nation state will be like a standing righteous man proclaiming God in the world. But he's also speaking to individual hearts of all of us here and unsaved Jewish hearts that God wants to sprinkle clean as well. So when you think about the fact that God's bringing literal people around the world back into the land, which he's done in the past, and now he's doing it again, and will continue to do it up until the end of the age. Uh, Literal people are coming back. The nation will be filled with a new heart at some point. That's not the case right now. Most of Israel is not followers of Christ today. Many atheists there, many orthodox, many that are just kind of humanist. And so uh, that needs to happen as a nation. hasn't happened, but... We do see a wonderful thing. More Jewish people have come to Christ in the last 30 years than at any point in all of history. In the last, since Jesus went back into heaven, the last 30, 40 years has been an unbelievable new wave of Jewish people coming to Christ. The number of Messianic churches that have sprung up. And when I talk to my Messianic pastor friends, they just constantly have new stories of what God is doing around the world. And so this is taking place. And God is desiring to bestow his goodness and his grace and just open the eyes of those that are blind. A.W. Tozer said, Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. That was us before salvation. That is Israel before God steps in. That is every person we meet. God bestows his grace on undeserving hearts. But he does the work here. Look at what he does. Uh, if you're taking notes, you can even write some of these in your Bible. Uh, you know, uh, we'll look at five things right here. One, he sprinkles us with clean water. Clean water. The clean water comes from him. We can't produce this clean water. He pours clean water on our hearts and cleanses us. Number two, he gets rid of the idols in our life. Our, uh, and, and all the filthiness from your idols. Before God, we worshiped idols. 
after salvation, we seem to gravitate back to idols. True? Before salvation, we were in idolatry. After salvation, we're battling against idolatry. We're going to look this Sunday at the parable, uh, or Jesus, not the parable, not a parable. We're going to look at the interaction Jesus has with the rich young ruler. And I think what's fascinating is Jesus says this previous Sunday. Jesus says, it's hard for a rich person to get to heaven. So if anyone ever tells you, you know, I have sometimes people ask me, um, do you miss what you used to do? And I'll sometimes say, yeah, I do. Yeah. And Jesus said it's hard. He said it's hard for rich people to get to heaven. Hard. Because the idols are strong. The gravitational pull is so strong. And if Jesus says it's hard, guess what? It's hard. So if anyone tries to minimize, say, oh, yeah, it's a piece of cake walking away from the things that I used to have or things I used to do or things I'd be, they're lying to you because Jesus already said it's hard. But the idols, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll take, he goes, you won't, have the, you won't have the spiritual fortitude to remove the idols, so I'm going to help remove them for you. Isn't that great to know? None of us could truly put down the idols without Jesus' help. He gives the impetus to do it. But then we need his help to do it. He goes, and I'll cleanse you from these idols. Number three, I'll give you a new heart. You can't give yourself a new heart. You can't buy a new heart. You can't create a new heart. But he said, I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you a new heart. Number four. I'll give you a heart of flesh. Which means that that the desires will change. Now take out the old heart, but now you'll actually have new desires. You know, aren't you glad that God gave you new desires? I didn't give myself the desires that I have. I received them. He took out the old, puts in the, and with that new heart of flesh becomes new desires. He says, and I'll put my, and this goes along with it, and then I'll put my spirit within you. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we have a lot of trouble, don't we? He helps us to walk, and that's what he goes on to say. It'll cause you to walk. Actually, I had six things here. I'm sorry. The fifth is the Holy Spirit, and the sixth there is to walk, to grow. To walk and to grow. Jonathan Edwards says, See that your chief study be about your heart, that there God's image may be planted, that there his interests may be advanced, that there the world and the flesh are subdued, that there the love of every sin is cast out, and there the love of holiness grows. So he puts that new heart in, but then we have the Holy Spirit that reminds us of these things, reminds us to, oh yeah, put away these things. Like Hebrews says, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily, easily ensnares us. Jesus says, Hard for a rich man, but he says, easy for sin to ensnare you. You see the difference? Hard to give these things up, very easy to pick them back up. That's what the Bible says. That's why we have to stay walking. He says, I'll put my spirit within you, but we can quench the spirit, can't we? We have to cultivate the new heart God's given us. You're here tonight on a Wednesday night. It's probably not easy to get here. There's other things you could be doing, but you're cultivating. You're cultivating because the world is tough out there. There's a lot of Edom out there. There's a lot of idolatry 
out there. John, the last thing he said in 1 John, you know what he says? Little children, keep yourself from idols. John, you wrote all that, and at the end of it, you have to sum up the very thing. You've said all this deep spiritual stuff. He said, oh, by the way, keep yourself from idols. Because God's taken them out, but we have a tendency to put them back in, like Rebecca, or like um, Rachel did. She grabbed those idols, hit them under uh, the seat there. We'll walk with him. He'll give us the ability to walk. What that means is once he ha- we have the Spirit of God in us, we'll be able to move forward in the faith. We'll have new hearts, but we'll have a new reason to live. And in Colossians 2, 6, it says, As therefore you receive Christ Jesus, Lord, so walk in him. Walk in him. Walk means growth. J.H. Newman said, uh, growth is the evidence of life. If we're not growing, there's no evidence of life. And the world would say, well, there's no difference. You're as dead as I am. So we have to, we have to sometimes we have to go back to these verses and say, Lord, I need to be re-sprinkled. You ever feel like you need to be re-sprinkled with clean water? Yeah, we do. It's called renewing. This whole thing is all, all you know, the text. Uh, he alone renews. We need to be renewed. In, uh, Romans 12 talks about being renewed in our minds. I said, I'm already saved. Still need to be renewed. I need to be renewed tomorrow, tonight. I want to close with uh, what uh, he kind of, after he looks at the heart, he goes back to the land this one last time, and I want to close with this for you. Um, Look at what it says uh, in verse 35. This land was desolate and became like the Garden of Eden and the waste, and the ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Turn just a minute, and we'll come to a close here. Um, Zechariah chapter 8. Turn over to Zechariah chapter 8. Thanks for hanging in. We've covered two full chapters tonight. We're minutes away from being done here. Zechariah chapter 8. Beautiful passage. You always look, did anyone catch Alistair Begg today on the radio? I'm the only one? Good. So I can use this quote after all. Um, <laughs> so I, ca- I caught a few minutes of Alistair Begg, and he quoted T.S. Eliot. And he said, uh, humankind cannot stand very much reality. He said, humankind cannot stand very much reality. And that's true. That's why people live in Netflix. That's why they live in Facebook. That's why they live in anything they can think of except reality. Bible studies are actually reality. They actually bring us back to the presence of God, reality. But here's a cool thing. When you need to escape this place and you still want to be in reality, uh, go read Zechariah chapter 8. It'll actually be like a cool glass of water for you. Because the future is amazing where Jesus is going to take us. Amen? And that's actually reality. That heaven is a reality place. Uh, you know, the things that, you know, the entertainment of this world, and, and I enjoy some of it too. I'm not, I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying to live a life of suspended reality is not a good thing. But if you want to be heavenly minded or future minded, that actually is a good thing. And look what the Lord is going to do. Look at Zechariah chapter 8, starting in verse 4. This is, what, uh, this is what chapter 36 is kind of hearkening towards. Zechariah 8, verse 4, it says, Old men and old women shall sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The world in the millennium reign of Christ will get back to people living close to 1,000 years of age. Um, the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. No crime because Jesus runs the world. Isn't that great? 
parents, you will not have to worry about locking the doors and all that stuff. Uh, the full streets will be full of boys and girls. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days. Will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. And look at verse 12, drop down to verse 12. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all of these. The whole world will actually look to, to Israel as the epicenter of planet earth. Look at verses uh, 21 through 23. Um, it says, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord. Can you imagine now the nations of the world are saying, let's go pray? We can't even get church people to say, let's go pray. You Think about it. The nations will actually say, let's go pray. When the church says, let's go pray, we'll actually be getting somewhere. But the nations will actually say, let's go pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will also go. Yes, many people and strong nations shall come and seek the Lord. The nations will be seeking the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. There it is. There's the heartbeat of the world. And pray to the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from every language of nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, let us go with you, for we heard that God is with you. Instead of mocking the God, they'll actually say, take us to your God. Isn't that amazing? Zechariah chapter 8. If you want to you know, get outside of our current reality but still be in a future reality, go read Zechariah chapter 8, and uh, it'll actually be a breath of fresh air. But that is just a foreshadowing of chapter 36. We see some of these things taking place now. We see the land coming alive. We see uh, many people coming to Christ, but there's still a lot more that remains to be done and so let's go ahead and stop there. We'll look at chapter 37 next week when the dry bones come to life. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for another time in your word. We pray that uh, as we talked about seeds, that uh, you would just have the roots of our, uh, the seed of faith that you already implanted in our hearts, that you let the roots grow deeper in our lives. Lord, forgive us for quenching your spirit. Lord, we ask for the fresh water of your spirit to re-cleanse our hearts. Lord, to soften our hearts. If our hearts are hard, that you'd soften them. Lord, if we've uh, just stopped walking with you. Lord, we wouldn't look at the future that, says, that tells us that someday everyone's going to want to go and pray to you. We have that privilege to do it now. Lord, that we would already live like we're in the kingdom. You said to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done now. That we can already live like we're in the future in your presence because you've already placed the Holy Spirit within us, the same Spirit that is glorified in the throne room of heaven lives within us. Lord, we just ask for your power and uh, just your Spirit to flow in our lives the remainder of this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. God bless you. Have a good rest of the week. Randy's house tomorrow night. If you're men, 630, you'll be blessed.